0: Professor Michael Beverland, head of the marketing group at the University of Bath's School of Management, examines how the marketers behind some of the world's most enduring brands are responding to a new environment. Good evening, and for those of you who, are, who don't pass uh, through the School of Management very often, welcome. Um, it gives me enormous pleasure to, uh, to be introducing Mike Beverland's inaugural. Um, Partly because he really wanted to do it, he didn't have to be persuaded, which happens with some new professors, and partly because um, uh, we've, we've done a fantastic show of it. And, um, I'm sure it's going to be great, I'm looking forward to it. Those of you who don't know, I don't know whether Mike's going to talk about his background, but he, he started here in January, joining us from Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. Or RMIT, I guess it's uh, usually there. Um, and before that, uh, Melbourne and Monash. And um, strangely enough, his specialist area is also mine. So that's kind of interesting. It so, wasn't, wasn't why I got the job. He's just the best person. But uh, I'm sure he's going to do an excellent uh, uh, job of uh, explaining um, the ideas of uh, where brands are going and uh, how to grow their meaning. And he tells me there will be... Time for some questions afterwards. Um, So,
1: over to you. Thank you, Richard. Um, Thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, I was amazed. Last time I went to one of these things, there were eight people, and um, it was in a room for 400. So, you can imagine that. You walk out, eight people there, the cameras go, and then you see that. So, and Alison told me it was kind of a sellout that kind of sounded very interesting. Um, Last night, I was at. Wembley Arena, seeing Flight of the Concords. and for those of you who know, Flight of the Concords of course, is a famous New Zealand comedy duo, kind of a couple of Kiwi guys made good walking out and seeing 10,000 people out there, all cheering, probably 10,000 New Zealanders, you know, <laughs> cheering, you know. so I kind of have my own little sellout gig is kind of nice, so I'm not um, going to have music interludes between my talk, because you wouldn't really want that, but... Um, what I want to do um, is talk tonight, as you know, the title is um, Future of Brand Management. <coughs> Pretty amazing title. Um, has built me up, but um, hopefully I can deliver partly on that. Um, I think there's a lot more to the future of brand management than just the notion of negotiating brand meeting with consumers. But one of the things I think that, that we're all aware of if we're, if we're marketers or if we're, if we're certainly dealing with consumers, and that, that includes most of us, even my colleagues who might not like to think of their students as consumers, um, is that the world has changed in some way. So if we, if we think about it, historically we used to largely say, here's my brand, this is what I think it means, you take it or you leave it. And you have very little say in what that brand actually means. And in fact, we don't even really care how you view it as long as you buy it. And most of our models for branding were built around that one-way, top-down communication type model. What we see now, of course, is that consumers are saying, well, hang on, um, we have a whole lot of technologies, we have a whole lot of different networks, and brands play a very different role in our lives and take on a very, very different meaning to that which you, the marketer, may determine. And, in fact, we will determine very much whether your brand is seen as genuine or authentic or real. All right? And we may, we, we may, of course, add in a significant amount of meaning. And depending on how we feel within our network, we may very much affect how that brand travels in the marketplace. And so I want to present to you slowly, I guess, in the initial part of the talk, this notion of the changed landscape. Alright, and some of the explanations that have been offered for it and why some of those explanations are inadequate. Um, now I'm, I'm most people who know me, I'm a little bit different as an academic. Um, One of my my former colleagues once stood up and did did his inaugural in finance and pulled apart every model um, and offered no further explanation other than that. Um, And that's probably what a lot of you may expect from an academic. We, We know what's wrong with everything, but what do we actually do to move it forward? I'm then going to move forward and talk about some of the ideas that I've been working on. Um, In my research for the last few years with a lot of managers, consumers, designers, and and so on, about where we might move and what are some of the principles and practices we might engage in to actually build brand value against a very different background to which we have had in the past. I'm going to do so, though, in a little bit of a different way um, than you might expect. Um, I'm a big pop culture fan, um, and I think... As as brand managers, we know the power of popular culture because brands are very much part of the mainstream culture. And when I was sitting down with all my data and all my ideas trying to think of how do I capture what's going on, um, I read a very, very interesting book. And I started reading this book. Someone told me I should read this book and everything bad is good for you. How Today's Popular Culture is Actually Making Us Smarter by Stephen Johnson. And it really is a great read. It doesn't take you very long. Um, to, to go through it. But the central thesis is, is, is fairly um, interesting. Um, basically, if you take away movies, Johnson's arguing that the, the traditional myth that popular culture is, is dumbing down society and being dumbed down itself over the decades is false. He argues that if you take any form of popular culture, whether it's games, right, video games themselves, are incredibly difficult. And any of you have tried to play them, and I know I used to years ago... <coughs> the time and the commitment and the energy to go into a game is significant. And it's even more significant now because you may be part of a network globally playing one another. Right. When he looks at movies, of course, he largely says, well, we'll leave movies for now. When he looks at, he looks at TV, he says, television is infinitely more complex than it has ever been. So Johnson's thesis is pop culture is infinitely more complicated than it has ever been. And I think this is, in a way, a nice way of thinking about what's happened to branding and then, more importantly, how we might respond as marketers. If those people that have to win an audience every day via comics, via books, via music, via television, and via um, games, are understanding this audience, are seeding this audience, and are winning... As brand managers, we're dealing with exactly the same audience, appealing to exactly the same motives, and dealing with exactly the same socio-cultural phenomenon. Let's have a look at his thesis. This is Starsky and Hutch from the 70s. Now, this is kind of a neat way of looking at branding as it, as it currently is and as it was. Starsky and Hutch, if you watch a show, it's the same show. Every single show. I apologise to fans of the show, but this is the 70s television. All right? I was too young to stay up for Starsky and Hutch. Thanks, Mum. I never really saw it. But Johnson tells me that, that Starsky and Hutch was effectively the same show. And the logic was simple. To bring in the fan, right, we keep reinforcing the same simple plot line, but we change a few peripheral elements. We change the bad guy. All right, we bring in some additional character that then we never see again. But by and large, it's the same show running week in, week out. Very typical 70s type of drama. Very simple. Much the same as how brands have been operated. We reinforce, we stay on message, we set a simple message, and we just bang away with advertising, Right, And hopefully, eventually, you get it. And the brand is positioned in that part of your mind, all right? that it makes sense. If we move forward, though, to Sopranos, also a show I've never actually seen, I might say. I'm not a big fan of gangster shows, but I will talk about a show I have seen recently. Sopranos is one of the most complicated shows ever. In contrast to Saskia and Hutch, it has multiple story arcs sometimes going over um, seasons. All right? Not just episode one episode to the next Not even just within a season But over whole seasons It has multiple story arcs Here of course as we can see It has a huge number of characters Very different to Starsky and Hutch And the bad guys right? So suddenly The world has got a lot more complicated Now Starsky and Hutch Was a massive massive hit and a ma- Sorry Sopranos was a massive massive hit right? And a massive cultural phenomenon and Johnson's thesis is very simple. This is where we are at today. If we think about television, for example, we see that it is infinitely more complex. Interestingly, as an aside, Johnson says that even if you take the trashiest TV, the game show, right, and you take something like Survivor, they are far more complicated and nuanced than what we had 30 or 40 years ago. Right? That were largely heavily scripted types of shows. Right? So that even the bottom level of pop culture has got more complicated. So, simple shows. Those are the good guys, but who's the good guys here? <clears throat> What's interesting about these characters is they, we may like them, <coughs> right? we may engage with them, we may relate to them, but they are, of course, shades of grey. Critically, they are neither good nor bad, or they do bad things, but they have likeable aspects. Right? What I took out of Johnson's book is this title, all right, for a recent article I've written called Shades of Grey, Future of Marketing, Future of Branding, all right? Now I called it as grey the new marketing black and the editor actually has said Shades of Grey is a better title and it was wrong. Um, but the whole notion is, is we live in the grey world. Pop culture is telling us that life is grey, reality is grey, all right? And my thesis is, is that brands exist in exactly the same world and we have to respond accordingly. And I'll unpack that for you tonight. This is a show I have watched. Um, this is, of course, Battlestar Galactica, massive, massive hit at the end of the 70s. All right. If we think about Battlestar Galactica, all right, good guys, the Americans, right? Cold War, all right? Nice and white, nice and bright, all right. The good guys, no flaws, right? Hugely likable characters on the run from these guys, the communists, the Russians, right? All the same, wanted right? to, of course, extinguish freedom. Right? They even had to bring in a human traitor to actually give the enemy a face that we could connect to. Very, very simple world of the Cold War of the 70s. There were the good guys, there were the bad guys. Again, same show, literally week after week with some form of variation. If you watch it, you can literally see the same screens, scenes being recycled time and time again, particularly when they're out flying and fighting one another. Right? These guys are trying to, to, to find Earth to save humanity. These evil guys are going to kill them. Massive, massive hit. I tried to watch this um, this Christmas just past when I was back in New Zealand, and I could watch about two minutes of it before I said, turn it off, it's terrible. It's the worst show I've ever seen. Now, I used to like this as a kid. Now, partly when I was growing up, New Zealand had two TV channels, so you, know, you, you didn't really have much choice. If you didn't like this, you had to watch Coronation Street, right? You know, as a kid, that's not that exciting. Um, what about this show? This is the reimagining from this century. Now, we have a very, very different type of show. It's reflective both of Johnson's thesis, but also we'll, we'll frame how give the rest of the branding. This is Asylum, all right. And behind her are all the other simons, right. First, Firstly, the human Secondly, they were created by man. Okay? Alright? And they came back and wiped out humanity. So the story's relatively similar, though, there's a twist. Now we can empathise with this character, who's not only, of course, responsible for wiping out most of humanity, but starting to feel rather guilty about that fact. And starting, like most stories in science fiction, with, with so- cybernetic life forms, to feel some emotions and try and learn about itself. All right. Very, very different story. The rest of the characters are neither good nor bad. It's a high, very, very grey series. All right, Strong religious undertone. Why? 9-11. All right. This represents the post-9-11 world. Who caused right, this massacre? Well, most of the narrative is the humans brought this upon themselves. They had somehow sinned and deserved it. And of course, the traitor here, Bolter, of course, foolishly, clumsily, let out all the codes, and so the Solons come and attack, the colonies, and so on and so forth. But throughout, we see these people changing. Most of the humans you see here are, in fact, Solons. Some do not know it, and in fact, spend most of the series slaughtering their brethren. Right? And then have to suddenly discover what it means to be exactly the opposite of what they thought. Some of the Solons become good, some of the Solons remain evil. Some of these people along here aren't particularly pretty themselves. All right? This represents the grain of popular culture. This is a very common theme if you look at most popular shows today or most cult shows today like this that gained a pretty large audience, very, very critically well-received show. Right? Now, what does all of that actually mean for brands? Well, let's take some lessons out of this first, before we move on. The first lesson that we should take is don't make robots. Okay? <laughs> it's probably not a good idea. I know we're playing around with that now, but it's not a good thing. If you do, though, just treat them okay. okay? I mean, that toaster that you call a toaster might just come and get you one day. But seriously, though. Firstly, we see every character within the show creating, right, shifting the narrative and the allegiances as external events change. As their background changes, they change themselves. As they change, so too does the narrative of the show. In fact, the great joke of the show was that the tagline was the Cylons have a plan. The Cylons had absolutely no plan at all. It fell apart very, very quickly. Right? When they all started to feel guilty, fall in love, and so on and so forth. Right? So the first thing we see is, as we see in the brand world, the notion of staying on message, <laughs> hammering away reinforcement, is open to challenge. In fact, it largely has to happen because we are constantly in a world of flux where people's lives are changing and their relationship to the brand is changing. Why do we do this? Well, firstly, we survive. Now, for most of you, running a brand, surviving is not that going to get you up in the morning, right? Just to survive. Right? One of the unions I, used to, I was at, we were in financial pressure. The omission statement from one professor was, we should survive. Most of said, that's ah, not really going to get us that, 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 you know, get our blood going, right? But interestingly, the narrative always through the show was survival is never enough, all right? We have to hold on to something important. We have to hold on to something that makes us human, all right? Versus the silence we're trying to become slightly more human and discover themselves. And again, I think that's an important narrative that we have for branding. Brands, of course, have to stand for something. All right, the brand that simply shifts or blows with the wind is a brand ultimately we despise, all right, and ultimately that loses any marketplace power. All right, brands have to stay, stand for something. More importantly, typically the people now that found brands stand for something. Just as Apple has shifted with the wind, quite clearly they remain very rooted to a set of values that they were passionate And of course that was brought out by these two characters in command of the the humans themselves. Now Johnson's thesis of course says there is of course one exception to this in pop culture. Movies are still as bad as they have always been. Um, Why? Um, Well basically they're still in the same format. They've got 60 minutes or an hour and a half to make their point. They have a lot of time to play with multiple story arcs. You only ever get one Peter Jackson every now and again. It comes along with Lord of the Rings and so on. You don't get much of that. All right. But the question is, what about brands? Are brands Battlestar Galactica? Are brands the Sopranos? Or are brands... No. I think for the most part, if we look at brands, they are more the latter rather than the former. There are some exceptions, and I've certainly been, been lucky enough to meet people managing exceptions. Right. So let's move now into the branded world. Let's take a simple example. Change in technology. TiVo. Most people know what TiVo does. Right? You can record a show, and it edits out the ad breaks. Massive problem if you're an advertiser. New technology comes along, gives consumers control—control they've control always wanted. <coughs> Response from media, um, Ted Turner's media empire. What's this? All right? That's theft. Now we've seen this from every organisation or every institution. Right, that is embedded or it has a leadership position, whether it's music, whether it's book publishing, whether it's movies, and so on and so forth. They all respond in this way. Ultimately, trying to tell consumers that you're actually stealing a program because you're not watching the ads fell on flat ears. (laughs) Not surprisingly, consumers said yeah right Okay, <laughs> it's not really going to work that way and more importantly of course this poor guy was absolutely ridiculed in the press and even amongst his peers right? so the branded world in a sense is still stuck in the 70s movies right? there's a simple narrative going on and you're going to play along according to the rules the rules may have changed but you're still going to play along with them We're not going to shift our models without it. I don't think any advertising model, and Robert can can correct me on this later, has really changed that dramatically, thanks to TiVo. In Australia, though, very clever. In Australia, of course, all the advertisers work very closely with the government so that they couldn't actually TiVo out the ads quite as easily as you might be in the States. You might have heard of this case. This is United Breaks Guitars. Now, United, of course, spent an awful amount of money telling us how great they were and how much they were going to change, and how great they were going to become. And they realised that they weren't very good, and they were now a new company. And after many, many years, of course, of, of this sort of nonsense, we still found out that they really were a very, very poor company. Right? And they rate bottom on every single satisfaction measure in the airline industry. But there's, this, this is the scenario that many brand managers find themselves now. Here is a failed country start. Okay? Now now that's a good thing. For people that hate country music like me, failed country stars are things we want more of. Okay? He traveled on United. And he looked out the window and someone said, Hey, someone's throwing a guitar around. And he started to film this with a little handheld flip camera. And he then wrote this song about it, this video, and it went up on the web. It's called United Breaks Guitars. I'm not going to play it, because this goes on and on and on, and it's country music, and you pretty much pick that I don't like that. But nevertheless, you get the picture. He's sitting out there. The company's messing his guitar guitar about, breaks his material. He goes and complains, gets the cold shoulder from everyone. Rude service. He just keeps hammering away, all right, hammering away. Goes on for about five minutes. The result, however, was really, really interesting. As soon as this went up on the web, all right, the most conservative players in the markets you can imagine. Now I know the financial crisis may have challenged that view, but nevertheless, right? Stockbrokers wiped straight away just for this, 180 million US off the market cap of United. Now you check the share price of a lot, the cap of a lot of these airlines. It's not really very much. That's a significant amount of money coming out of a company that's struggling anyway consumer says, not only don't we like you, I'm not going to complain, I'm actually going to voice my annoyance to a wide audience and I'm going to create some copy that counteracts the rubbish that you've been sending out. And I will have a very large impact on your brand equity. Now, if you think about an organisation like this that's suffering from terrible satisfaction, how much more of this is going to come out? This is a company that could be sent bankrupt, not because they... You know, the U.S. airlines regularly just trade places with one another to become bankrupt. simply because bad service. The ads themselves, the brand positioning was undermined purely because they didn't live up to it. And secondly, now consumers have an immense amount of power to actually hold you to account. There's a different example that, that leads me into more about where I would like to go. This is a photo for which brand. It's not surprisingly for Converse. All right, I met this photographer. I was very lucky to meet this photographer in Melbourne last year. Uh, amazing, amazing photographer. This is not a stage shot. This is a guy who just goes out and goes to gigs with his camera, and he just got this fantastic shot. We're very, very lucky. All right? Now, most of us who know this brand aren't surprised that this brand is part of the music scene, particularly the alternative rock scene. It doesn't surprise us in a bit. All right? Yeah. Interesting thing, Converse never actually positioned itself in this way. Right? Converse was the college basketball brand in the US. That is Chuck Taylor, the all-star. He lends his name to these shoes. He developed a shoe that was simply cheap, highly functional, all right, and became synonymous with a very narrow niche, albeit an important one, US college basketball. All right? proceeding what Nike did years later, he simply wrote a whole lot of manuals on how you coach basketball, how you play basketball. Therefore, very quickly became clear that if you were a serious basketball player, you wore Chuck Taylor's condos. Right? That was their original <coughs> positioning. And that was the line they kept for many, many years. It was the line, of course, that they eventually started to, to lose. This model started to fray with the arrival of Nike and Adidas and so on. They had bigger money, right? They had a bigger spread that could put on bigger stars that could invest significant technology into shoes, bigger marketing budgets and so on. Converse fell away. But, of course, there are always people that need things that are cheap. One of them is students. um, But two of them are musicians. And so, very quickly, of course, musicians, roadies, fans started to wear a shoe that was light, comfortable, hard-wearing, and most importantly, cheap. Right? Converse did no advertising to this market, no positioning work with this market. They kept on plugging away, trying to sign up basketball stars and spend College. Now, when you look back at the history of, of this brand, one of the things that becomes very interesting is everyone says, this is the shift. This is when... People started to get the idea that Converse was part of the music scene and embedded heavily within it. The Remains, famous album, Beginning of the Punk Era. I know people here may, may question whether they were the beginning of the punk era, but actually they were. What's interesting though is, despite the folklore of the brand, those are not Converse shoes, those are all KED shoes. Joey Ramone always said that he couldn't afford Converse. They had so little money. They went for the cheapest possible sneaker they could possibly find. Now, hold that thought as we go through this. There were, so of course, changes through the 80s and 90s that, of course, started to occur. Joan Jett, very famous rocker in the early 80s, of course, instantly on a big hit album, wearing a red pair of Converse shoes. All right, Green Day, as we know, regularly photoed with these shoes. All right, this brand now started to realise the community had picked it up, just as another community had let it go, go. So what are we going to do? We're going to invest heavily in it. Alright, we're going to start becoming part of the music scene. We're going to align our entire brand image with the rock scene. Alright, and we see this coming through. And product innovations, alright, such as branded music music-branded shoes, ACDC. ACDC probably did not wear Converse. Um, and we also see with recent advertising, this guerrilla-style advertising, all right, um, again, Converse, very, very modern style of market. All right, This is a brand that's done a total shift away from sport to music. They didn't drive it, but they woke up one day and said, let's <coughs> go with it. And we come to this. The photo, photographer, very much in tune with the brand, done a lot of work for them and went, that is perfect for our ad campaign. That was an award-winning ad campaign from a few years ago. All right. And we all understand, if we know this brand, that this makes perfect sense. Just as this brand can now legitimately release a Ramones-branded pair of Converse shoes. Never used by the brand. Band. The band has long ago given up. And in fact, Joanne unfortunately died. But they can bring this out with some degree of legitimacy because they're part and parcel of the music scene doesn't matter whether the the band actually used it. What are the explanations for this, though? The explanation that that the, the, the entrenched players can't deal with this reality, the explanations that consumers have immense power and are having a say on how brands actually move, and more importantly, the explanations for how just brands have come about that don't seem to fit the dominant model of branding. The first one is this one. It's kind of the who knows, who cares argument. Right, as Walker says in a brilliant book, I, I, I might be giving him a bit of a rough time here, but it really is a very, very good book. Um, you know what? It doesn't even matter all right, that, that the Romanians didn't wear those shoes. We just know that it's part of the music scene. Now, that is, a, that is really a very narrow way of looking, of course, because of course Converse have been in there. At some point, they got their act together and started to see the music scene. They were playing a role in creating that image and enhancing their place in the community. It wasn't the case that we have nothing to learn from Converse, that it was a beautiful accident, and that's that. This book, which is also actually a very, very nice book, Accidental Branding, right? Brands are largely accidents. They happen. People start businesses. Ten years later, we wake up with a brand. There actually are no principles to building great brands. It just happens. All the guys telling you about the models are wrong, right? Right. Now, I like reading that type of book, but if I'm in a company right, with lots of money, I don't really like reading that type of book. It doesn't really tell me what I'm supposed to do. Probably throw out lots of ideas and hope a few of them stick, which is, of course, the Hollywood model, which we know is falling apart. This one, of course, kind of takes in a more relaxed view of it and just says, look, oh, just go with me. You know, you know, you're not in control anymore, just tune out. OK, if, if rockers start wearing your shoes, then you're part of the rock world. If rappers start wearing your clothes, just run with it for as long as it lasts. Don't worry too much about it. Again, get yourself out there and hope someone says, we like you, we're going to embrace you, and leave it at that. It's a book titled, again, a very, very good book, I might point out, Brand Hijack, Alex Whippefur. Right? the whole notion of a hijack. People will grab your brand, use it for your purposes, and discard it when they're finished. Again, nice idea. And also an idea that does happen. Right? There is truth to this. But again, if you're sitting running a brand with a brand budget, what do you do? Right? Do you just wait for someone to pick up your brand? Well, there are plenty of brands, of course, that never get picked up at all. They die a death every day. So that's not a particularly useful model. And again, it ignores the fact that brands that actually are picked up often play a very, very critical role in ensuring they're picked up, or if they are picked up, then learning very fast to become part of that community and manage their position within it. So there are some problems, right? There's a lot of research that, of course, suggests, well, consumers are buying out. They're not actually interested in brands, but when you look at it, of course, the modern relationship between consumer and consumed is basically frank complicity. I mean, look at this. Right? If you're a brand manager, all right, you've got these guys walking around. This may be good for you. This may, in the case of chateau Petrus, not be so good for you. Right? But people are embracing brands as pretty heavy identity markers. When you go down and start tattooing yourself with something really sad like Microsoft,
0: Hollis, um, for anyone who
1: from Microsoft, I'm an Apple guy, so you know this. Really um, but you know, look at all of these things, and these are not—you know—we might expect that, but you know, we might expect that from a rocker, right? But but you know, Firefox, a search engine, right? I'm mean, going to put it on my buttock? I mean, Come on, you no, know? I mean, that's a bit sad. You know, um, Yahoo, you know, yeah, Lacoste. You know? Right? Consumers, of course, are building their identities around brands. They're not outside the system; they are the system. They are right in the middle of it. All right? This is, of course, the world of Warcraft community at Comic-Con. Right? All of them dressed in character as blood elves, living out a physical reality as a character all right? in a community that's largely virtual. Okay, Consumers are playing along whether you like it or not. All right? And more importantly, they're playing whether you're there or not. Contrary to a lot of research though, and contrary to I think a lot of the, the sort of anti-branding ideas, they actually want you there. Right? They've latched on to something they like that, that you did. They want you to play a part. Right? As McCracken notes, corporation now has to still get down to business, but of course they have wider expectations. Brands also are now part of socio-cultural communities. All right, that have to achieve legitimacy within that community. They have to achieve the right to be there. You don't get the right to be there by running an ad. Right? You have to do other things to earn that right to be with that community. If you can do it, right, you can actually drive your brand equity very, very strongly. Right? As consumers say, they may say that they are actually immune to persuasion But, of course, they're playing a very active role in creating the brand and keeping it going. Now, as much as the myth about (coughs) Apple is really great that it starts with Steve Jobs coming it back, there was a decade of consumers holding that brand or keeping that brand alive by tattooing themselves, by stickering things, by running with with machines that weren't actually that good, by adopting software no one used and so on. Brands play a part... Sorry, consumers play a part in brands' life or death. Okay. So reinventing it and maybe even revitalising it. I'll show you some examples of that as we move through. The other suggested strategy, so we've got just run with it, right? we've got who knows and who really cares, is to actually take the old model and just try to go narrower and narrower and narrower. Maybe the end result is that if, if the market's changed so dramatically, we simply have to get even better at what we've historically done. All right? Maybe that's one result. And I've shown this to at least one member of the audience before, so I apologise to him in advance. All right? This is, of course, Quidel's market research behind their pregnancy test. And this reflects the type of markets and the type of nuances we look at today that, of course, where we're looking for slight variations to target smaller niches as well we look at it, initially this looks relatively similar. If you do a simple demographic study, exactly the same target market. The thing that's different though, of course, is one group of women do not want to get pregnant. One group of women, I'm oh, sorry, they're the fearfuls. One more group of women want to get pregnant. Maybe the answer is simply to pitch different products at each one of them. Or well, in this case, the same product, but called and branded something very different. Simple example. Right. Hopeful's got conceive, fearful's got quick view, and it got positioned in this way. The critical thing, of course, is uh, you can charge someone that's hopeful $3 more than you charge someone that's fearful. <laughs> Maybe that's the way to do it. All right. Just get better at market research, and we now become companies that build lots of targeted niche brands. All right. We all know as marketers that markets are fragmenting, segments are fragmenting, so as a result, we just have to pitch messages and offers in a much narrower way. All right. Now, this, of course, got an enormous amount of, of criticism, precisely <coughs> because, apart from packaging, they were exactly the same <laughs> product. They did exactly the same thing. Of course, for the consumer, they did very different things. And right. that's important to remember. All right? Ms. McCracken notes, one of the problems with brands when they go in this approach is they miss the opportunity <coughs> right, that a lot of consumers are now demanding. Okay? Right. As I said, consumers don't actually want to be, where is, where's the bit about the skittle, a bowling pin act, acted upon by marketing. Right? Once they find out they don't like the fact that, that you're so clever and you're so smart at narrowing right down on what pushes their buttons. They feel a sense of resentment there. So yes, it works for a short period of time, but everyone can do it. And it's still a functional offer. And therefore, it's still an offer open to price discounting and price competition. So if we look at the model so far, basically we've got two ends of the continuum in terms of how to respond to the brand challenge. Firstly, is go with the flow. Again, those of you who know your pop culture, um, those of you who know me, know I'm a big fan of the Coen brothers. The best way of capturing this model of the branding is the dude. Right, those of you who have seen, of course, the Big Lebowski, know that the dude pretty much sits there and lets life pass him by. If he gets kind of knocked around and bounced around, he kind of complains and whines about it, but right, he just lets it goes with it. And things sort of happen in the end that you know, he didn't really know that would happen, but it all kind of works out. Right, the opposite part of that model is total control. All right. For those of you who watch Mad Men, all right, you've got the Don Draper model. Now, if we think about this show, brilliant, brilliant show, totally within Johnson's thesis, but the Mad Men model, how does it work? The client walks in to Don and says, this is our problem. Don offers him a drink, all right, says, we'll get on to it, sends his team scurrying away with some, some very vague instructions. He goes out for a really good lunch probably has an affair in the afternoon and one in the morning as well, um, because that's what he does. Um, And then he comes back with some magic insight and says, that's it. That's the line you run with. And the client goes, yes or no, that's it. You very rarely see any consumer insight, very little role for the consumer. The main dynamic in the show about advertising in the 60s is a team of different people around that all throw ideas in and eventually something pops out and then the genius Don walks in and says, actually, if we just say this, instead of what you said, we've got it. They win the account. Things don't ever end happily ever after in this show, but nevertheless it goes on. And that's how ads are built. When things get into trouble, Larchie comes in and says, you've got to realise you've just got to stick with the line. The fog coat is just about wearing a coat when it's cold and rainy. That's all you can own, nothing more than that. Just stick with it. Right? Very, very simple model. Tightly controlled, largely by an ad creative, building the brand, staying on message, Right? versus run with it. Now I and many others sit right there in the middle. I am, after all, an academic, so taking a strong position on any e-pole is a little bit um, against my nature. But also, of course, we know simply that you need the creative. You need the person in there that's actually putting some ideas into the mix. You need, at times, to run with it. right? But there needs to be a little bit more purpose than a drugged-out dude sitting there going, well, something's going I'm going to wake up tomorrow, and if I don't, it doesn't really matter because I might be here or something. So, so what's left? If we start moving into the metaphors now, what's actually left? Well, firstly, um, if we look at branding, there's some changing metaphors going on. So we started with this idea of, Managing brand equity, strategic brand management, captured brilliantly in this middle book here. Uh, by uh, Larry Percy and some other guy. Uh, Richard Alley. of course. Um, you know, and, and I know I'm being a little bit unfair to put this here, but, but the, the notion um, that, that branding is something we manage strategically. We build brand equity, we manage brand equity, we strategically position brands. Right, Much of this work, although not so much in here, to be fair, of course, are saying this is what you do as a manager to build your brand equity. Right? Now, although the consumer features in here, it's mostly a something, someone or something that we're actually doing a lot of things to. There's not a lot of listening to the consumer or interacting with the consumer in these classics of brand management. And if you've not read these books, you really must. They are excellent for, for their type. Um, Richard also tells me he needs some more money, so if you could buy it now, it would be really (laughs) helpful. Um, But again, as McCracken, the great anthropologist, talks about, the problem with this type of model, in a sense, is, as he says so wonderfully, it's kind of like that fat boarding guy at the party, talks too loud, drinks too much, stares at the girls, generally thinks the world revolves around him. Most of those books put your brand right at the centre of the consumer universe. They even trick you by coming up with models like the consumer-based brand equity model. Or can you actually read it, there's not much of a consumer in there. Certainly not the consumer we'd recognise out of Johnson's work and popular culture or that we would meet on any day uh, during the year. And I thought this was really interesting because just to, to ram this home a little bit more, this is an example I love. Uh, it came from, from a couple of years ago. One of the greats of this branding model, Procter & Gamble, I mean, truly one of the greats, just won a whole lot of awards deservingly so, but really one of the great houses of branding this is Claudia Kochka right, Vice, Vice President of Design Innovation and she's talking about the PNG effect she said this is a brand that she loves, Altoids a little can of mints. made here in Britain originally Then right, kind of died off a little bit you can still get them here, but massive in the US right? US have taken off, nothing's changed, this is one of those brands that was discovered, picked up and really run with, ok it's a brand that Wrigley manage um, currently. As you can see, it's a kind of quirky, old-fashioned brand. They still make stuff in tins. They still keep their mints. i can open it. Quirky paper. All their mints are kind of hand-cut. They're kind of broken. Not, <coughs> the tins are not full. It's a fairly amateurish-looking operation. <coughs> All right, and this is Clotcher's reaction to it. The mints look handmade. It's not completely as full. The whole thing's very, very authentic. And she asked an interesting question: What if we brought that brand? What if we brought that brand? Now this shows you the maturity of a company like Procter and Gamble to have this insight. This really is, I think, quite a, a deep, um, deeply thoughtful type of company. Firstly, the tin has to go. Quite frankly, it's expensive and old-fashioned. So that's. right? Okay? What is the point of the paper? It gets in the way. I mean I open up the mints and there's this bit of paper here. That has to go. And that's saved cost already. And what they come up with is, as she calls it, proctoids. <laughs> in a nice little plastic clamshell case, all the mints measured out, machined to perfection, sitting in a little case. Proctoids would, of course, be made from cheap white plastic that they have in their baby white containers, a so nice efficiency there. Um, beige overalls jammed into there, not too many colours, saving on papers, really, really good. Um, they're like altoids, um, but they kind of are appealing as, as pile of horse pills, and just for the privilege of that, we're going to whack you another 400% premium, right? But this is the VP of innovation at Procter & Gamble having the immaturity and insight to actually say this. This is the old brand model recognising that doing the same thing with a brand being discovered and owned by consumers isn't going to work. All right? Also, when I start talking to brand managers, as I have for the last decade, these words start coming out when they talk about their brands. They're very different to what they used to come out. The notion that that's, we're, we're in a process of discovery. I would struggle to tell you what my brand might be. I know what I'm kind of doing today, but I don't know where I'm going to go with it. I'll discover that when I get to it. The notion that the process is organic and highly fluid. All right? That our target market once was this, and the next day we woke up and it was someone else and we just ran with that. All right? And we tried to work out what we're going to be. That there is a fundamental lack of control in the process and that it is a ground-up process. So there's a spoiler in here. A little bit of boring, variable stuff here. Is this, this, this challenge new? Now, there's, there's, a, there's a New Zealand saying that, that, that you'll get to know... as as you see me around, that that we we're very non-committal as a people. So we say first thing we say is yeah. Yeah sometimes just means I'm hearing you. Um, If we look at consumer culture theory, a lot of research, the research stream that I work in within the consumer realm, and it's identified by the the, the editor of of the Journal of Consumer Research as one of two dominant streams of thought looking at uh, consumption. Right? They largely, of course, say that it's a relatively recent phenomenon that consumers are very, very active creators of brand It's part of what we call the postmodern market condition, or the post-industrial condition. Brands that shift with, with cultural changes will, of course, develop iconic status. Doug Holt's brilliant work right, looking at brands at icons. Right? And he's very, very simple. If you look at the dominant branding model, the evidence simply doesn't back any of their claims up. Right? They make all these claims about how they're going to build brand value, it just doesn't wash. If you look at what great brands do, they are all over the place with their brand meaning. They are chopping and changing as the wider socio-cultural picture shifts. Right? They stand for something today, and in five years' time, they stand for something radically different, right? because it works. Right? And, of course, Robert... Young and Rubican, okay, coming out of David Arker's work, of course. So f- this is the traditional side of it saying, You know all that stuff we talked about, you know, back in the 80s and early 90s, it's actually decreasing brand equity. So it's actually not even paying off in their brand asset valuator model as much as it used to. There's a recognition now that we have to shift to something else. Right? This is a paper I, I, I didn't present thanks to thanks to a certain volcano in Switzerland. They were good enough to send me best paper award. Uh, it's a paper I wrote with an honest student of mine, Sarah Reynolds. And I'm still back in Melbourne. Um, so six thought leaders, leaders in brand management conference in Lugano. Some of the findings that I, I presented when you went and really looks at what managers do to deal with brands is that managers often take decades to formalize their brand identity. One of the brands that I've, I've looked at in quite some detail is the Morgan Car <coughs> Company. It was only in 2005 that they sat down and formalised their brand identity. After polling their consumers, after going back into their history, to go, you know what? Driven at heart pretty much captures up what we do. Now, that's virtually four years away from their 100th anniversary. They sat down and formalised their brand. This is a company, by the way, that is extremely successful up until that point and still are. All right. Brands often shift target markets and target meanings simply because they had to. All right. Brand owners often struggle to identify what they stood for. Typically, they knew what they weren't. When I started this journey, I started at a pretty decent place. I went off to Shadow Margarita, Bordeaux.
0: And like any naive
1: researcher, I said, you know what, Christine, can you tell me Sorry, Corinne, can you tell me what your brand stands for? An hour and a half later, we went to lunch, and we still hadn't addressed that question. We simply didn't know. Bill Cart, Salmon, owner, turned up to the Australian wine Marketing conference. <coughs> he was the guest speaker to say, this is how you brand at the luxury end. 45 minutes later, most people were none the wiser. Now, this is not the French having fun with the Australians. He genuinely couldn't say what his brand was about, other than it was important that the family's values were respected in that process. That was it. Right? Totally against textbook thinking, totally against a lot of practical advice. Undeniably recognizes one of the great brands in the champagne category. High end, high value, and consistently so. Brand owners remain very open-minded about where their brands would go. So these are very big brands early on in their life. Crumpler being a classic case. Um, have no idea where they're going to take their brands, who their target market will be. Um, don't see that they're bound by what they're doing today. Um, and then finally, they openly admitted that their core promises are totally a moving target. So we actually look at practitioners, and time and time again, we see what they're dealing with. This is the message that comes back. All right? And yes, sometimes they went with the flow, but critically it had to feel right. So, again, they didn't formalise anything. They didn't say, we're not going to do it. They just had a sense that it was either right or wrong. And they were more likely to be open minded to each approach. Now, as I said, Kiwis have this idea of saying, yeah, no. Now, if you hear me ever saying to you, yeah, no, that actually means that I hear you, but I totally disagree with you. You're going to go away saying, hey, you actually thought that was a pretty good idea. This is this a new thing? This is this a new thing about powerful consumer affecting brands? Let's have a look at some interesting quotes. Um, consumers have become articulate, um, they demand more information, changes have tended to make consumers more critical and harps importance. important. Um, new forms of consumer skepticism, blah, blah, blah. And of course, this one, I love this one, the new consumer is an incomprehensible ogre. All right, this, of course, the fact that the consumer is powerful. Isn't all that new? All right. Of course, this was a consumer that was largely gaining more money. This was a consumer that was becoming picky because they were looking at functional things and they weren't open to just stark, bold uh, claims by advertisers that were actually factually incorrect. Right? So there is a little bit of shift today simply because, of course, culturally the issue is more important. Things are now part of our identity rather than just things we have around the house. There's some interesting things when we start looking at a lot of the research that's been done in the consumer realm, is we are yet to see the crossover in any, in any serious way of, of what we find consumers doing into our models of brand management. So we're getting this great research. There's 25 years, there's now 30 years of consumer culture theory out there, and they still won't tell the brand manager what it means for them. And yet this is some of the best research you've ever seen in the marketing realm. This is serious stuff I mean, it has to be right. This guy's written some of it, all right? Some of my colleagues have written some of it. I even written some of it, all right? All right. But this is seriously some pretty smart cookies doing this work, right? They openly admit that most of the focus on the consumer—they are consumer researchers after all—leaves out the role that other meaning makers play, right? We might all walk around as Mac users, saying that we're creative and we're different and we think different, but we are parroting ads Max Apple sorry, Max ad campaign, that they've been running for about 20 years now. The idea that just because Apple flew a pirate flag up at Cupertino, that we're all striking one against the man when we buy an iPod. Come on, this is a company that's billions and billions and billions of dollars of share market cap, all right, on the stock exchange. This is the man. Holt focuses very much on the big picture. So as societies change, the brand messages change. But there's a missing picture. What do you as a brand manager do? If you look at his research very carefully, there's only one conclusion you take away from that. You. Fire your agency. All right? If you can't connect with society now, it's because your agency isn't. You focus very much on communication. Your agency isn't young enough or hasn't got the right vibe. Fire your agency. Move to another one they'll switch your message, right? There's much more branding than that, though. Of course, advertising is not getting the cut through it once did, so, of course, we need to go beyond that. And there are some other studies. Yes, brands are complex gestalts, but, again, beyond leveraging popular culture, what are we going to actually do? Communal activities are very, very important, but, again, how do we create... How do we become part of communal activities? Does our role change if we're part of a community? All right? Um, we can't just tell it as we want to in that very one-way fashion anymore if we're part of a community, but what do we actually do? Um, and again, right, the service-dominant logic, which we know from, from marketing very, very well, um, puts much greater emphasis on the consumer as being a creator in brand meaning. Okay, that's going to change how we brand, but what is the change? What are we going to actually do with all of this stuff? This is a, is, a, is a passage I took from, from a CEO from a very, very large northern sports franchise in the UK. I um, won't tell you what it is, but um, it's from a sport I don't like, which doesn't tell you much because I don't really like much of them. But right, as he's effectively saying through here is what you got to realise. What you got to realise is you've got to understand how to embed yourself in the consumers' circle and how you add value to their time the one resource the consumer has in <coughs> finite amounts. And when you understand that, <coughs> and then your story is just part of a broader consumer world and set of goals that they're trying to achieve, then you're starting to get it. And this is arguably a franchise of recent times that perhaps hasn't quite got it. Right? So I think the question, and the question I posed in Lugano, was effectively this. How do we manage brands embedded in socio-cultural networks? If we're working in the grey zone, and the grey zone is mass popular culture, how do we manage our brand identity within that arena? It's a slightly narrower question, but it leads us into where we can go. It takes the transformation away from positioning, which is the historic root of branding, which is very, very static. How do I position myself in the market? I teach my consumers how to do branding very much, well, can you do well? What are competitors not doing? What do your consumers want? Just pick that position where there's a gap and own it. It's positioning. Moves the focus to process. How do we actually build brand? Which still today is an open question. There's a lot of good research on it, but there's still a lot of questions unanswered as to what brand managers just actually do day to day, keep their brands going. I would a slightly different model, and this is a working model, so I'm, I'm hoping Get lots of questions, comments, criticism, and so on. If we see that the environment has changed, the consumer is no longer a rational individual consumer looking for things that have functional benefits, but they're part of a wider socio-culture, subcultural networks, peer networks, and so on and so forth. I think we move our brand's role to one of custodianship. <clears throat> one of the things that came out to me time and time again was this notion that the brand that we are only custodians of the brand. We hold the brand in trust, both for our owners, but both also for our consumers. It's not unusual as you've seen from Converse, but also from other brands I've worked with, such as Vegemite in Australia, the hair brand managers state the brand belongs to the people, not us. That's a custodian model. And that's a little bit different from an ownership model. <coughs> right, what do we do? Well, we have some execution strategies, and I'll go through these to finish out the talk. Right? rather than, of course, going through into the normal four Ps and looking at how we execute. Increasingly, what comes out is if we want to be part of this world, we actually have to become part of this world. Right? Instead of hiring market research companies to get third-hand evidence of what your consumers think and then bring that back to the boardroom, get out there into the street and actually hang out with your consumers. That comes out constantly from product designers, Marketers, social networkers, brand managers, marketing managers and so on. Get out there. Locate yourself where they are, interact with them, experiment with them and then embody the values you actually stand for. And that will drive your relevance. So, what's the question when we're looking at how do we become a brand custodian? Well, firstly, it's essentially the question of how do I earn the right to sit at the consumer's table. I used to assume that I not only set the table out, that I sat at the head of the table. That is no longer the case. The consumer has often created the table, or more importantly, they may have stolen it from you, now think they own it, because ownership now is nine-tenths of the law, and don't even really want you there. It'd be nice if you were there, but they're not the fuss if you're not. How do I own the right to become part of the consumer's world? Back to Shadow Margot, (coughs) one of the constant things that came out was how do we keep the brand going for the wine world? How do we leave it in a better state? This is Kareem, Vincent Poulos, and Paul Pontellier two lovely charming people incredibly smart marketers despite the fact the first email they sent me is we don't do marketing and so there's no point in talking to us. Um, they're brilliant um, and they're lovely and their wine is even better. Um, but you know, they simply see themselves as holding the 600 plus year old brand in trust. Right, is now so much part of wine history, they dare not stuff it up. And that's why, despite those surroundings, they're very rarely ever there. They're out in the marketplace. So let's look at okay. Firstly, I think that the, the, the takeaway here is why are we spending so much research on trying to know our consumers? Now, I point this out quantitative research and also naturalistic, ethnographic. Cool hunting type research is all secondhand information. It's largely hearsay. <clears throat> right? The companies that are actually building their brands are going beyond that and simply being extremely biased by being with their communities. The notion that we want distant information as being objective is complete nonsense when it comes to building a brand for our company. We want the most passionate insight we can possibly get. And increasingly they're arguing this is building our peripheral vision. The great thing about peripheral vision is it notices qualitative differences in your environment. And that is their strategic focus. Critical here is to locate but not to dominate. Very different to the model. Walker in his book, I gave him a bit of a roasting early on, but he he calls this marketing, This idea that there's increasingly this murky blend between everyday life and marketing. (laughs) This is one of the great brand stories that came out of New Zealand. 42 Below Vodka uh, started off in the back of a guy's shed by a very senior creator from Such and Saatchi, nonetheless got bored with the agency and wanted to make vodka. Um, sold it to Bacardi for a significant sum, all based on the fact that it was a powerful brand with significant potential. S- essential to their success was this notion of renter crowd effectively their mates went around all the bars in Wellington and all the bars in Auckland and then all the bars in London and said, have you got 42 below? And all the bars went, shit, we haven't got 42 below, so what are we actually going to do? we better stop this product. Right? All the cool people are coming in here with their pounds and their dollars and their yen, and they want the product. Now, they're not hired right, people pushing the product, they're actually people that will drink that product. So they're the consumer, right, but they're also the marketer. Right. The reality between image and reality, sorry, the, the gap between image and reality has certainly shrunk. Great story that I almost started off this, this line off is, is the reinvention of Dunlop Volley in Australia. This is what most of us growing up would know as Dunlop volleys. These are dad shoes, they're kind of worn, they're kind of old fashioned, they're used for going around the yard. You wouldn't be seen dead in the street with it. They're pretty much like that. And by certainly the nineties, that was still the brand that Dunlop was selling. A loss leader, a commodity that starved out of every bit of marketing spend they could. They saw no future for the brand new one. Right? But then they found that some really cool kids were getting these old volleys from their dad and painting them and wearing them. It became the hottest thing overnight right, in the street in late teens. So suddenly, this company started to say, you know what, let's get out there. Let's get out there in a way that respects the community. So, firstly, there were some artists that were, of course, very, very influential in this community. They gave them shoes. They said, do with them whatever you want. Right? And we got great installations like this, speaking exactly to the customer where the brand is part of it, all right? but that murky reality is quite clear. All right? <coughs> here, Lovely, positioned within a store, it's relevant to the community and the street that's relevant to them, but not the same type of marketing that we would know. There's no message here, but in a sense, the fact there is no message is the message, right? We are part and parcel of your place. We're just thankful we're here. As a result of of people actually um, tattooing their shoes, they then work with with um, Mambo great print designer to come up with a range of very respectful new releases, limited editions, played very strongly into um, the emerging sneaker culture at the time. And as the the former marketing manager, who is retired, said, you know, it it really just was something doing doing something a little bit different. Um, There wasn't really this notion that there was a marketing message, but in a sense there was a marketing message. It was just a different way of communicating. It was much more respectful of the fact that the consumer had taken us on board rather than us trying to force our marketing message down their throat. What was interesting at the time is they had reinvented this brand. They were going to push this brand as like the cheap, the kind of the low-cost version of Nike, and they are putting good marketing spend behind it, lots of good research. Where they ended up, because they went with the flow, was a local, edgy fashion icon, earning significantly higher margins and significantly better retail outlets than they had originally had. Next one is interact. Shift from top-down telling to interactive storytelling. Again, a similar message comes out time and time again, a lot of research. Critical to this, of course, is something that marketers never, ever do well. We have to listen. Right, we like to talk. A lot of our training, of course, comes from sales. So we like to talk. Listening is really critical. I think it's a really neat example, and I've showed it a couple of times before, but I, I still love it. It's one of the most successful um, fast food franchises in the United States. Now, there's some interesting things here. Prices haven't changed for a long period of time. Menu hasn't changed since it was founded around about 50 years ago. It is, of course, In-N-Out Burger. Right? Delivers higher margins than most of the other fast food chains. Pays its workers more in a notoriously low-cost industry. And retains a greater number of its employees. Does not suffer from the massive turnover of staff that most of the other fast food giants do. No innovation, no change, no marketing. People seek these guys out. All right, and they get the results. This is the standard menu. So you go into this, you get a double-double, which means two pieces of meat, two pieces of cheese. You get chips, chips, chips. They have about four options here. But what happened was consumers started to come in and say, you know what, that's not enough for a big guy like me. I need a triple-triple. Actually, I don't want a vanilla shake or a strawberry shake or a chocolate shake. I want a Neapolitan shake. Can you do it? The company is wise enough to say, you know what, we can. What we'll do is we'll key in a secret menu into all our cashier's desks. We won't tell anyone about it. We'll just allow people to come in, and those of them in the know will be able to ask what they want, and we'll just be able to key into it as if we've, we're in on the secret all along. The secret menu. The 3-3, three, three, or if you want, the 24-24. <laughs> Gunbuster thing. This is listening to your consumers and doing something very, very simple that builds a connection to the brand and builds a real emotional connection to the brand. It's almost intuitive. It's saying that you just get the people that buy your product. You don't have to tell them what you stand for. You demonstrate. Metaphors here are really, really interesting when we start looking at some of the practitioner literature, which I think is way ahead of some of the academic literature. Joseph Jeff talking about just join the conversation. Conversations happening out there become part of it. But it is a conversation. Mark Gobi talking very early this century about the notion of a citizen brand. You are a citizen. All right? We know citizenship entails obligations as well as benefits. All right? And it certainly does here in branding. All right? If we look at Timberland, was <coughs> a brand that just didn't get it. This was the brand, as we know, the boot for the days when men were men and so were the women. Okay? Hard-wearing, leather boot. These guys liked it. The rap community in the US started to think this was a pretty cool shoe. Hard-wearing, all right, worn by wealthy white people, so we're going to take it because it's theirs and we're going to show how much money we've got and how powerful we are and undermine the image. And we're going to, of course, start using the image in this quite nice graffiti. Yeah. Here's the response of Timberland. Get this. I mean, this guy. It's pretty amazing if you think about it. If you want to buy us and you're a NATO Target customer, We don't have a point of distribution that speaks to your lifestyle. Now, I just love this. This is the one thing you'd say, and then you'd regret instantly. While the hip-hop consumer's money spends good, we primarily aim at honest working people. (laughs) Ah, yeah, okay. Um, Timberland is dead on the web In the rap community, amongst the African American community, which is the most influential community on white teenagers in the United States, particularly males. If you want to get to them, you go through this community here. It's a simple diffusion model. You don't do that. They've been paying penance for years to get around that. And they finally realized when when Jeffrey woke up, it's a family company, and they said, What would your father say if these guys were wearing boots? And just say, how, how many are we selling? All right, and he finally got it. That, you know, that's what it's about. Let's just get out and sell again. And so we see, again, different, different metaphors. I talk about it in my own book, had to get it in there to sell a few extra copies. But I talk about my own book the notion that the brand is just a story. It's much like a hurricane, just picks up power as it goes through a community. But this is what I, I love even more. Um, he got there before me in terms of the, of the whole idea the notion that the brand is a jam. One of my favourite groups is is the Stray Cats. And there's this brilliant video showing when the Stray Cats played at Brixton. At the end of it, they offered a song. And they went into the studio. These guys have been playing together for 30 years. They hadn't written the song. They jammed out the song. And eventually they recorded it. And they just knew each other so intuitively. But they knew where each other was going to go. Slim Jim on on, on the bass, sorry, on the drums, certainly knew where Brian Setzer was going to go on guitar. And the song emerged. It emerged out of that fairly quickly and fairly beautifully. And Gobi's idea, he doesn't quite capture it, he gets it in the title but not in the book, is that brands can be pretty much like that. Right? You get to know each other so instinctively in an outburger that you, you can predict where each other's going to go. That means you can start playing around and experimenting. All right? And certainly we know, of course, brand meaning is created by a lot of players, <coughs> apart from just the marketing team. Popular culture, as we've seen, customers importantly, but also influencers. We know this from Holt's work, but we know this from the examples of some of the biggest failures of our times, the move from Coke to New Coke. This was a brand heavily embedded in myths within the community and suffered as a result, a massive backlash as a result of that because it forgot those bonds and just simply chased the better flavour. And of course, Snapple, brought by Quaker Oats, professionalised by Quaker Oats, and then literally sold. All right, at a bargain-basement price because it's so ruined the brand within a few years. The guys who brought it simply said, let's go back to what we were, which was this counterculture, hard-to-find product all right, that was really an emotional buy and a cultural buy, not a functional buy. What about experiment? Well, there's a lot of emphasis on open innovation. All right? But there's also needs to be greater emphasis on daring innovation. Open innovation is one thing. Let your consumers do your innovation. But... Consumers aren't there to do your innovation primarily for you, OK? It's no, no secret that we see the companies today the companies that get us excited and make the news, all right, are companies like Apple, right, are companies like Dyson, all right, that are just taking big, big risks, all right? So there's a combination. Listen, but also take some risks. all right? I love this quote. I got to meet... Um, um, for the life I may have forgotten his name but this is the guy who founded Wetterworks, the guy who, of course along with Peter Jackson, Robert Taylor put together um, um, The Lord of the Rings um, this is the sole surviving Oscar they had they lost them all, It's from King Kong but he, he had this great, this great saying, aim for failure and miss, right? the whole notion that just get out there and try things and you know, some of them will actually come off um, but primarily open up the brand story for consumers to play with You've controlled the use of the story through brand mountaineers. Open it up to them. They've got it anyway, so give them more to play with. One of the great examples of this is World of Warcraft, going back into the virtual gaming world. Very, very popular franchise. When they came to, to come up with the next installment of the franchise, and they've moved on since, it was the Burning Crusade. And their brief was simple. We are messing with everything. We are playing with every bit of backstory, every bit of law, Whatever you knew you, is wrong. All right? It's the grain part of the marketing game. So they went from elves, which we all know elves are noble, um, distant, long-living, right, good, and so on, to blood elves. Right? So addicted to magic, that they're neither good nor bad, not trustworthy, but they may work for us. But their addiction, like any addict, clouds their judgment. Ultimately, all that matters is getting more of a fix. (coughs) They move that, radically reinterpreting the game's terminology. They found that actually this resonated with the fact that their target market of teenage men, teenage boys, was struggling for their own identity. So the notion of playing around with identity and trying out options and experimenting Worked perfectly for a group that was doing exactly that, and it sold 2.5 million copies on the first day of the release. The biggest launch, and the most successful launch in the history of video gaming at that time, and has continued to go on to be a massive, massive seller. Lego is another one that we can kind of. The company, when they released Mindstorms, were in a certain degree of trouble. They're seen as outdated, boring, right? Not targeting um, the right consumer and the mentality of to today's consumers. Released to children, but mostly sold to adults, who then cracked the code and started doing what adults do, throw a whole lot of this stuff up on the web, writing guidebooks and all sorts of pirate types of things. Coming up with great products like this, a safe, using Lego. Lego's reaction was, this is a shadow market and we're going to threaten you over the use of our actual title. Um, they were seen surprisingly as brand was arrogant and unresponsive, only so I rather shocking conclusion. In 1999, they kind of got it and said, you know what, we're listening, we'd like to become the company you'd like us to be. The subsequent result has been a ton of user-generated innovations that have reignited this company. And that's why when you go into toy stores, they dominate top-shelf space that we have today. These are incremental innovations. They've made a significant number of actual, genuine innovations in terms of software underpinning, a lot of their games and so on, so right through applications for uh, um, iPhone. And the final um, principle of this is embody. We hear a lot about embodiment of brand principles. We have a brand statement or a brand guide or a brand value. But in this part of the world goes a a little bit more deeper than that. It's no secret that we've suddenly seen this return to authenticity, this notion that people want authenticity from their brands, that brands actually walk the walk as well as talk the talk. It's no secret that we actually see the power of design thinking, that the non-reactive thinking, a much more proactive thinking. It seeks to bring together opposing forces or solve paradoxes and shift things forward. All right? We see this emphasis on, on the notion that, that people should love the doing. This notion going back to, to Ayn Rand's famous book about the, of the fountainhead Head, step to your principles, all right, stand for something, embody a purpose, and eventually you'll win out the crowd. All right? Importantly, we see the notion of how is that done Well people are hiring their customers as their employees. Right? If you can hire your target market, you're going to get day-to-day feedback on your innovations and, of course, on what your competitors do. And we see a greater emphasis and value placed on leaders who actually engage with their own work. brilliant article in Why, and I wish I wrote it myself, came out earlier today, the notion of uh, earlier this year, the new industrial revolution. Right? That the powerful brand can be built by craftspeople all right, mass craft produced, Right, and very good factories in China, and people engage with it because if the consumer's now a producer, they are more than happy to deal with other producers who are making stuff, right? and ultimately live your principles. And I think there's a really interesting case study here about the missed opportunity that this, of course, represents. Dove in the Real Beauty campaign. We know that, of course, if we move through this, this brilliant repositioning of what was a functional product... Into the campaign for real beauty, the use of 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 real so-called real um, size models, although they're all um, they're all of course um, what, are they, what are they called? It doesn't matter. Photoshopped in. Um, brilliant ad um, that came about. The, uh, the all the images that your daughter is bombarded with in the fashion industry is ultimately going to shape her perception of what the ideal image is. Lovely tagline. Talk to your daughter before the beauty industry does. Brilliant. Um, If you then go on the web, the first grey moment hits when Greenpeace come out and say, well, it's very interesting because your products are full of palm oil. And palm oil hurts little girls like this. So their tagline, using exactly the same music, exactly the same style of the ad, is talk to your daughter before it's too late. Grey moment number two. Unilever had already responded to that and said, hey, we'll we'll do some work about sustainable sourcing and so on. Someone worked out that the great house of brands... Was trying to have things all right their own way. They were trying to play both sides, both ends of the story. Yes, they could talk about that they were anti-beauty industry, but they also had that, all right? What we know as Axe or things, The most misogynist, sexist brand you can imagine. Spray this on, woman, fall at your feet. They chased you down the street. Now, in its own right, a brilliant <coughs> campaign targeting the right audience. So what did they come out with? Dove's dirty secret. Dove is the beauty industry. Talk to your daughter before Unilever does. Now someone's told me, of course, that that Dove has now pulled this campaign. I think that represents a massive mistake. I think this could have been a learning model or a learning opportunity for one of the greats of branding. Um, But it also represents that perhaps the greats of branding, as we know them, can't operate in this world. They couldn't have it their own way. It got too grey, too messy, too murky. They simply gave up. So the conclusion. Firstly, are you in control right, as brand managers? And the fact is you're not. Right? Are you relevant or desired by your consumers? Potentially. some good that comes out of this. They would like to see you there. Right, but they're not going to give up things that are important for you just because they think that you ought to be there. Can you create value in the grey world? Well, of course you can And I think it's interesting just coming full circle. What does this take? Well, let's go back to science fiction. And let's go back all the way to Battlestar Galactica with Gaius Bolton, the traitor to humanity. Now, in the old show, of course, he was the traitor. And he never stopped being the arrogant traitor seeking power. The embodiment of evil. In the new show, of course, he's really rational, superficial, narcissistic, and petty. That's how he starts off. There he is, sitting there getting booze chatting about all his work, that, of course, is the key solon operative for memorising it all on hard disk. He betrays humanity, not deliberately, but clumsily. What he says in Pillow Talk while he's having sex with this creature here. He's largely in denial about his play on the downfall of humanity. He sees himself as the victim, and so he hides it. Because he's a scientist, he's one of the few left, and he may even be able to detect the silence, he seems necessary but not loved and not trusted. And I think many brands today are seen as necessary, but not loved and certainly not trusted when they could be. They are, of course, rational. They are, of course, often seen as superficial, certainly narcissistic, and oftentimes like Lego petty. He then, of course, gets discovered in charge, and he repents. My triumphs and my mistakes. And then he really repents. All right? He discovers his soul, Realised he actually was a good man and that underneath what he was suppressing, all the superficial reality that he was engaging with was just that, rubbish. Right? And he actually started to stand for something. And this is him right at the end, for the first time ever, picking up a gun, going in to defend his friends. All right? And he had two nice lines here. Right? Partly, you just have to take a leap of faith. It was a brilliant line to finish this, of course, show, and to try and achieve peace between two opposing sides. You may not trust us. We may not trust you. But we just have to take it on faith that it'll all work out at the end. And the reality was, he actually became loved, faults and all. Right, live for a thousand years, right, with his one dying love. And I hope that that actually occurs for you with your brands and certainly your consumers. And I thank you very, very much for coming. Thank you.
0: No I'm going to suggest that instead of uh, taking questions here, we actually go to, to the reception directly across, which has been laid out for quite some time now, and I hope it's not what Nelson or whatever it might do, um, and anybody who wants to uh, debate the uh, leaps of faith um, in branding can do it over a drink. Before we go, I want to say mm. thank you to the three people sitting on front road to our two extremely hard-working uh, ushers, uh, doctoral students in marketing, who have done a brilliant job, thank you, and keep the gowns, because you'll need those when you actually qualify. And I have to say, most of all, I want to thank uh, Alison, who has transformed the way that School of Management does uh, in all the lectures, and all of this has uh, been laid on by her, including in providing the gowns for the, for the ushers. So, Thank you all very much, and you go to join the <laughs>